Let's open with a word of prayer, then we'll go over the outline and we'll dig into the text. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love you, Lord. We ask now as we go to your word that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. And Lord, we see two examples in tonight's text. One example to follow and one to avoid. And help us learn to learn in these tale of these two kings, arguably the most godly of the kings of Judah and the most wicked of the kings of Judah. And so, Lord, for us, we want to learn how to follow the pattern of the one who did right in your sight. But Lord, teach us how to avoid not doing what is right in your sight as King Ahaz does over and over again in this chapter tonight. So Lord, be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name. We pray and all God's people said. So it's been a few weeks since I was here on a Thursday. I had a week of training for chaplaincy and then I was gone for my son's um, wedding last Thursday. He actually got married last Thursday in, in the Virgin Islands. It was wonderful. So the last chapter we looked at was King Uzziah. And if you remember, King Uzziah was a godly king, except that we saw in the end, and, we, and there's eight times in the book of Kings where it says, and he did right in the sight of the Lord. But seven of them, right after it says that, it says, but... He did right in the sight of the Lord, but he had this one area where he made a huge mistake. And we saw that with King Uzziah. Who remembers what he did and what happened to him? Bonus points. It's only been a couple, it's been three weeks. And people want to know why I'm repetitious. Nobody has a clue. It was three weeks ago. Okay. King Uzziah, if you'll remember, he entered, he took the role of the priest and entered in to the temple, which he was not supposed to do, into the holy place. And because of that, God struck him with something. What was it? Leprosy. And so we saw, and as soon as that happened, he was isolated for the rest of his time as king. So now as we pick up this morning, we're going to see that his son takes over as king. Grab your outline. I tell the message, a tale of two kings, lessons we can learn from both a godly and an evil king. First, we're going to see King Jotham. Now, if I asked you to name kings before tonight, before I mentioned his name, and said, name the, some of the kings of Israel and Judah, I would be really impressed if anybody said Jotham. Because he's really nine verses. And there's not a lot written about him. But what is written about him lets us know Remember I told you there were eight kings where it said they did right in the sight of the Lord, but right after it said, but King Uzziah went into the Holy of Holies and was struck with leprosy. And we saw those, well, this is, this is the only guy of the eight kings where he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and there literally is not any recorded failure or any recorded sin. We know he's a sinner like all of us, saved by grace, but he's kind of like Daniel, He's a guy that reigned as king, and there's nothing derogatory said about him, and we're going to see things we can learn from him. First of all, doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. He followed King Uzziah, his father's uh, virtues, but he avoided his failures. So he learned a lot from his dad, because Uzziah was a wonderful king, with the exception of what brought leprosy upon him and isolated him at the end of his life. But he also learned that what 
King Uzziah did, what his dad did was wrong. And you know what? I think that we need to know that as believers, experience is the best teacher, but it doesn't always have to be our experience. We can look at someone else's life or see something that is recorded in scripture, and we can learn both the things that we should try to emulate and the things that we would want to avoid. He followed his dad's virtues, but not his fleshly choices. Number two, how do we do what is right inside of the Lord? We prepare the way for the Lord. This is something that you guys, if you know me a little bit, this is something I'm big on, which is I want before my feet hit the ground in the morning to have surrendered the day to the Lord, to, to begin the day with prayer, to say, Lord, I'm a, here I am, Lord, use me. Yes, Lord, your servant hears. I want to be a tool in your hand today. Bring divine appointments my way today. Give me an opportunity, Lord, to, to stand up and speak for you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, preparing the way of the day. And that's what Jotham did. He was prepared to be used by God. And how do we prepare to be used by God? We spend time in prayer. Guys, we should be in constant communion with God. Amen? Communication with Him. We should be constantly talking to the Lord, hearing from Him, be it in the Word, be it in prayer, and be it in fellowship. We need to seek His guidance, wisdom, and direction in all things. Guys, the prayer and the Lord should never be the last resort. It should be the first place we go when we need wisdom, when we need direction, and when we're just living our day-to-day life. Thirdly, live every day to please the Lord, not the world. Boy, do we all need to hear that. Amen? Jotham, we don't, most people don't know who this guy is. And the reason that they don't, he was not a man who promoted himself. He was not a man who worried what the world thought about him. He had a one-track mind serving the Lord. May we have a one-track mind to serve the Lord, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, knowing then and only then will all these things be added unto us. May we live in such a way that our life counts for eternity and that God is glorified in us and through us. And we want to make sure that again, we don't Try to please the world. By the way, that's, that's a failing task, amen? And people that try to please the world means you're going to compromise in your walk with God. We're going to talk about this when we get to Ahaz, but the world right now does not like Christians, amen? Right now, it's more popular to be perverse in any way you want to, to, to some of the most evil things that just doesn't even make any sense to me. And those things are applauded. They have parades for it. They celebrate it. And if you're a Christian, they want you to keep your mouth shut and they want to threaten you, threaten your job if you stand up for the Lord. And so it's not easy to be a Christian, but guys, it's always worth it. Amen. So live every day to please the Lord, not the world. Faithfully follow and pray to be used by him daily. So that's King Jotham. Again, doing what is right in the sight of the Lord, preparing the way praying the way for the Lord in his own life every day and living every day to please the Lord. Now, his son. So here you got the, arguably, the most godly king of Judah of all the kings because not a single sin is mentioned of him. And now we get his son. And they don't get any more wicked than this guy. Literally, he is like King Ahab from Israel on steroids. Let's look at King Ahaz. Ahaz. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. Boy, that word not in there, Jotham did what was right, and it says he did not do what was right. Boy, that's a big not, amen? That's a not that keeps you out of heaven. 
Nuts and not that brings a righteous judgment of God. First of all, we're going to see, again, these are just applications. God has no grandchildren. We're all responsible for our own actions. Just because his dad was godly and God was blessing his dad doesn't mean he's going to be blessed. It means he's accountable for his own walk. You can't point to us, well, my, my dad was a godly man, so God's got to let me in. No, that's not how that works. We're all accountable for our own walk with the Lord. We're going to see that sin has consequences. Uh, this is a heavy price to be paid. There is a heavy price to be paid for unbelief. As we get, when we get to the end of chapter 28, you're going to be worn out by Ahaz. Every time you think he couldn't get any worse, he does. He just keeps getting worse as we go through the chapter. Number three, stand for the Lord when nobody else will. In the middle of Ahaz's demonic and ungodly and evil behavior, we're going to see a guy that's only mentioned in the Bible right here. And his name is Oded. I've never heard of him. This is another guy. I wrote him down on my list of guys I want to have a Coke with in heaven. Okay, he's on Shadrach, Meshach, Manigo, Paul, right? John, you know, there's people in the Bible. Oded. I'm going to find that brother and have a Coke with him. Because this brother stands up knowing it could cost him his life. He's going to say something that's unpopular, but he's going to say it with authority. And he's going to address these guys who had just taken uh, 200,000 people captive. He's, they're dragging them back into captivity. And he's going to stand up in their face and say, what you're doing is wrong. God sees you and you need to let, let them turn around and go back. Can you imagine going out and facing a huge tribe of people that just won a war? They got their swords in their hands. They're dripping in blood and they're bringing back the captives. And you run out and you get in front of them and tell them what you're doing is wrong. Send them back. Oded does that. And praise the Lord for a man who will stand for what is right, even when he knew it might cost him his life. We need more people like him. Number, five, number seven there, ungodly behavior will not escape God's righteous judgment. Guys, we're accountable for the, the, the example we set for others. So not only is Ahaz evil, he sets an ungodly example that the entire nation starts following. That's why we don't follow men, we follow God. Amen? We don't look at what men do and try to emulate men. We emulate the Lord. Men will always fail you. Why would you try to emulate the imperfect when you can pursue the one who is perfect? Amen? And sadly, King Ahaz, he, he's, it says his he, moral depravity, he's promoting it in the land. He's such a, such a scoundrel and such a, an evil man. And then finally, times of trial and distress can draw us closer to the Lord or further away from the Lord. At the very end, just when you think that Ahaz couldn't get any worse, he's going to. So let's begin there. We got a lot to cover. Uh, it's only 36 verses. We should be able to do that. Uh, the tale of two, a tale of two kings, lessons to learn from both a godly and an evil king. We're going to begin with King Jotham, who did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And let's begin there in verse 1 of 2 Chronicles 27. It says, Jotham was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerashu, Jerashah, and his daughter's name was Zadok. Now, in Scripture, when they mention the names of like the mother, and in this case, the grandfather, it's usually because there's some significance behind who those people are. 
His mother's name, again, the daughter of Zadok, and it seems that his mother's name, again, which aren't usually given, I think mainly to link him to, to his grandfather. Zadok means righteous. And it's interesting that Zadok is often linked with someone who was a priest. So I believe that the grandfather on his mother's side was the high priest of, Israel, uh, high priest of, of Judah. So here he's got a God, he's got a godly, you know, he's got godly family members. Uzziah was a godly king who made a mistake. He also has a relation all the way back to King David. And then he has a grandfather who is a righteous religious man who's being used mightily by God. So we see that Jotham has been raised in a godly way. And we see the foundation that he stands on. Now look what it says. Now, again, you read that verse. And if the next verse says, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, it won't matter who raised him. It won't matter what kind of background he was raised in. And too often today, everybody wants to be a victim of how they were raised. And I'm not downplaying if you were raised in a difficult situation that it wasn't difficult, because I know it can be. But what I want to do say is, we're not going to stand before Almighty God on Judgment Day and be able to blame our rejection of the Lord on anybody else. Amen? And so what does it say about Jotham? It says in verse 2, and he did what was right, in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Wait, now watch this. Although he did not enter the temple of the Lord. So he did all the good things his father did, but he did not follow in his father's footsteps where he rebelled against God. He took the position of the high priest. He went into the holy place God brought judgment, covered him in leprosy, and he was isolated. So Jotham is a godly young man. He's got a godly dad, godly grandfather. He's raised in the truth. He learned from his father's virtue, but he also learned from his father's failures. Jotham learned, again, both what to do and what not to do from his dad. Notice it says at the end of that verse, so is he a godly king? What's the answer? But look what it says at the end of verse 2. But still the people acted corruptly. So they had a godly king who honored the Lord, who sought the Lord, who was a man of prayer, and yet the people still acted corruptly. Just because there is a godly leader does not mean that there's going to be a godly nation. And sadly, that's exactly what we're going to see with Jotham. He is a godly man. He is faithfully following the Lord. And sadly, the people of the nation are not walking with the Lord. The word still is important. They still walk corruptly. So they've been walking in corruption as kings have come and gone. And so let me just say this too. If you're, look, should we vote biblically? What's the answer? Absolutely. We should absolutely vote. We should vote biblically. But if you think getting the right person in the White House is going to change everything, you're sorely mistaken. The way that everything is going to change is if and only when there is a revival in this nation and God's name is lifted up and people start getting born again. Can I get an amen to that? Nothing short of that is going to transform this nation. It's not a political leader we need. It's a surrender to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen. So the people continued. They did not repent. They did not have a change of heart. You know, it's interesting. During this time when Jotham is reigning, he has some prophets around him. 
And the same is true of Ahaz. Let me name a few. Have you ever heard of Isaiah? Isaiah was somebody that would speak into the life of the kings. Not only Isaiah, but Hosea and Micah. So he's got holy prophets surrounding him. He had a godly dad who made a bad mistake at the end of his life, but still made it in worshiping the Lord, not false gods like we're going to see Ahaz doing. And when he has a godly grandfather, his name means righteous, who's the high priest more than likely. So here's Jotham. He's starting well. He's, again, honoring the Lord. And even though he's righteous, sadly, he's leading a kingdom that is acting corruptly. And again, it's not Jotham's fault that the people and the culture would not follow his example. While we are to be faithful and righteous examples, each individual and the cultural at large will be responsible for their choices and behavior. I have a pastor friend who says to me that the church is a failure in America because the nation keeps getting worse. And so it's our fault. Look, could the church be better? Of course. But, and he even mentions the Calvary movement. Oh, it's a total failure. It's been around 50 years. We've had 3,000 churches. Things are worse. I know millions of people have gotten saved through the Calvary Chapel movement. That is not a failure. That's a victory. Can I get amen to that? But what will happen is we'll start saying, well, the church is only successful if the culture changes. Well, here's the point. The culture is filled with spiritually dead people who want nothing to do with God. Now, as believers, we should live for the Lord, but we shouldn't be surprised when people who don't know God act like they don't know God. Amen? And it's not the fault of the righteous that somebody that you witnessed to for 10 years refuses to give their life to the Lord. We want to pray for them. We want to reach out to them, but ultimately, they're responsible for their own behavior. So point number one there, doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. He followed his dad's virtues, but not his fleshly choices. Point number two, prepare the way for the Lord. So here he is, this 25-year-old guy. He takes over as king. His father didn't end well. He ended up in a leper colony or isolated away. And now he is the king. And it says this of him. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord, and he built extensively on the wall of Ophel. He built the upper gate. This was always a positive sign in Judah when kings and leaders were concerned about the house of the Lord. When people are rebuilding the temple, when people are making it more accessible to people, one of the things he's also going to do, he's going to reattach a... uh, hallway or a way between the house of the Lord and the king's house. He's going to increase his accessibility to go and worship God, not to go into the Holy of Holies like his dad did, but to come to sacrifice, to come to a place of worship. And whenever you see a king focusing on making worship more accessible, honoring again the place of worship, that's a good sign. And you know what? That's the thing I'll tell you when I'll be really impressed is when we, have, when we have a president get up and not say to get votes that stands up and says, the only way our nation's going to get better is when we repent, we surrender our life to the King of kings and Lord of lords, and I'm not the head of this country, Jesus Christ is. Now that's what we need to hear. Can I get an amen to that? Now God can do it, but ultimately, so here's Jotham, and he's reestablishing. He wants to make sure that 
Again, the temple is honored, and the link between a temple and the palace, he wished to have access to the house of God, to keep open communication with God. The good news for us is we have the Holy Spirit today, and we don't have to go to a building because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, amen? And we have access to the Lord, and we can be in his presence anywhere and any time. And guys, just because we have access, that's not enough. We need to do something with that access. We need to begin that day and spend time in prayer. We need to seek time with the Lord in his word. We need to be in fellowship. Are you, do you have intimate fellowship with the Lord every day? King Jotham did. He was a man who desired to walk in intimate fellowship. So his father Uzziah misunderstood the link between the royal house and the house of God demanding priestly authority. Many kings before him wanted no link between the royal house and the house of God. And Jotham understood he was a king, not a priest, yet he wanted a good open link between the palace and the temple. Verse four, moreover, he built cities in the mountains of Judah and in the forest he built fortresses and towers. So he was making the kingdom stronger, the kingdom of God's people stronger to stand up against their enemies. He turned his attention toward construction and planning. Again, he had long-term view of making sure the people were right spiritually, but also they were protected militarily. So here he is, he's serving as a good and a godly king. Verse five says, he also fought with the king of the Ammonites, and defeated them. And the people of Ammon gave him in that, that year 100 talents of silver, 10,000 cores of wheat, 10,000 of, of barley. And the people of Ammon paid this to him in the second and third year also. See, because Jotham pursued the Lord, because Jotham walked in intimate fellowship with the Lord, when he went out into battle, he would only go when he was being led by the Lord. And when he was in battle, he was in battle with the Lord. If God is for us, who can be against us? And because he knew the Lord and he took his direction from the Lord, when he went out into battle, he could go out in confidence. And guys, if you're walking in intimate fellowship with God, you can live the life on this planet with confidence knowing that God is always with you. Amen? So that intimate fellowship for Jotham was key, and it's key for us as well. God gives him victory over the Ammonites, and the tribute was substantial, over three tons of silver, and it was given to him year by year. So the Ammonites were defeated. Jotham had victory, and Jotham had victory because he was led by and walked with the Lord. Verse 6, and Jotham became mighty because he what? He prepared his ways before the Lord is God. That's how I got the point right there. The reason he was mighty is he spent time in God's presence. He was mighty because he took direction from the Lord. He was mighty because he sought God before he did anything. The Lord prepared his way. The Bible says that God is the one that commands our steps. As we follow him in faithful obedience, as we step out in faith to do his will, and that's exactly what Jotham was doing. It says in Proverbs 4, my son, pay attention to what I say. Listen closely to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, 
for they are life to those who find them and health to a man's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Put away perversity from your mouth. Keep, keep corrupt talk out of your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Make level paths for your feet and take only ways that are firm. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. What he's saying in this proverb is keep your eyes on Jesus. Pursue only him. Don't turn to the right or to the left to the things of the world. Follow after him. Follow after him with reckless abandon. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. The secret of Jotham's success is seen in this verse. He sought the Lord. He prayed. He worshiped. He brought his troubles before the Lord. He sought guidance and wisdom and direction from the Lord. And he must have been in constant communion with the Lord, or we had, he would have not have ordered his ways aright before him. This is true not only uh, to the kings, but it's also true for every one of us. It says in Proverbs 3, 6, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will what? Direct your path. So guys, when we're looking for direction, we're seeking wisdom from God. Seek first the kingdom of God. Pursue him with your whole heart and allow him to be. Make him the one who leads you. In Judah, eight kings, again, it says, did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And Jotham is the only one that did not mar his testimony. Nothing mentioned of Jotham rebelling or falling away. In Psalm 37, it says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. So these short verses about Jotham, it tells us that God prepares his way, tells us he's doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. God's given him victory over the enemies. He's built up access to the temple and worship of the true and living God. And then finally, it says in the last few verses there, live every day to please the Lord, not the world. Look what it says. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all his wars and his ways, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. He was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. So Jotham rested with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David. Then Ahaz's son reigned in his place. So Jotham is relatively lesser known king. He faithfully followed the Lord. He was used mightily by God. The three previous kings all started well and finished poorly. And it's a blessing to see a king that actually finished well. Amen? It's a good to have that example. So this man is only listed for a few verses. We get a glimpse of his life. And most people don't remember his name. And I don't think Jotham cares one bit. Because he wasn't worried about being famous with the world or being admired by the world, but being faithful to God. And that's a word of exhortation for all of us. Amen? So, now we move on to a guy that's just a little bit different. He's as evil as it gets. I think this guy's name should be broken just like Jezebel. This guy is as wicked as, about as wicked as they come. So let's take a look there, looking at Ahaz. And like I said, we've had three kings in a row that at least started well. Two that didn't finish so well, but one that did in Jotham. So Jotham is Ahaz's father. His grandfather is Uzziah. His great-grandfather is Zadok, who is the high priest. And if you go back a few more generations, you're going to see Solomon and David. So he's in the line of David. 
He's the king. Now remember, he's not the king over Thousand Oaks. He's the king over God's people. Amen? He's the king over God's chosen people. And this is so, so tragic. Let's begin there looking at King Ahaz did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. First point, God has no grandchildren. It says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. That is not what you want on your tombstone. Amen? Amen? You don't want it to be said of you. I don't want it to be said of me that I did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, as his father David had done. So they're using the example of King David, but we know that all these other examples, we know that Isaiah, uh, from, and we see it in Kings, gives direct uh, exhortation to Ahaz. And so he has people around him that know the Lord, but we're going to see that he's a man that wants nothing to do with the Lord. His life is defined by the fact that he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. The rest of this is going to describe what that looks like. We saw that Jotham did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and then he was a man of prayer. He prepared the way. He had access for people to worship, right? We see all these things about him that describe what is doing right in the sight of the Lord. Now we're going to see what is doing evil, not doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. His dad was what was right. And you know what? We may fool the world. The world may sing your praises. It's irrelevant on judgment day. The only one that matters is what God has to say about you. Amen? No one else is going to matter. You can't bring up any character witnesses. You can't get any letters from your friends to try to get you into heaven if you don't know the Lord. Born again, redeemed, new creation in Christ, seen by Almighty God through the shed blood of His Son, or spiritually dead by the flesh, lost and an enemy of God for me or against me. On judgment day, you're either going to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, or depart from me, for I never knew you. And guys, that's the only 401k I'm worried about. Amen? That's, the retire- that's, what, that's what I long for. May we live every day like Jotham, doing what is right in the sight of the Lord, and not like Ahaz. So he had a godly dad. He's raised in the truth. He's a descendant of King David. He rejected godly examples, and he's arguably the worst king of Judah. So what made him the worst king? The example he followed and who he chose to worship. Look what it says. As his father David had done, verse 2, for he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Now the kings of Israel, were they godly or ungodly? What's the answer? Were they faithful or wicked? Wicked. All of them. And so he's going to follow the example of Israel. Now, what was Israel known for? Idolatry. Idolatry. And so what he's going, so his dad was making access to the temple better. His dad was making it so people could worship. He was encouraging it. He was lifting up the name of the Lord. And now his son's going to come along and he's going to worship idols instead. And we're going to see before it's over, he's going to make it almost impossible to worship the true and living God because of what he does to the temple. Notice what it says there. And he made molded images for the Baals. The word Baal there is Lord, but the first time Judah imitates Israel's apostasy. Jezebel and Ahab brought the worship of Baal to Israel. If you guys are going to Israel with us, 
in January, we are going to go to Mount Carmel and we will teach on Elijah and the prophets of Baal and how they made these altars. They called down fire from the sky. And we know that the prophets of Baal cried out and they wounded themselves. And in the end, of course, their God didn't respond because their God doesn't exist. And then Elijah calls down fire. He first covers it in water. It not only burns the fire, but take, consumes the entire altar. And then they take all the prophets of Baal and they, and they kill them. So these are the prophets of Baal. This is the same Baal. By the way, you might want to read a little biblical history here, uh, Ahaz, amen? How's that prophet of Baal thing working out? And yet he's going to pursue the false gods of Israel and idolatry and in so doing, turn away from the true and living God. He's going to bring back Baal worship from Israel to Judah, turns from the true and living God to dead idols. Look at verse 3. This is heavy. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his children in the fire. Guys, we're two and a half verses into this guy. Now, Hinnom, now when we go to Israel, we used to be able to go through this valley. We may go through it. But it's here that they would worship the god Molech. And Molech was a kind of a bronze or metal statue. And when they would heat this god of, you know, sexual immorality, but a god, of, a god that they believed would make them prosper, but they had to feed him certain sacrifices. And one of the things that they would do is they would heat up the hands to the point of a flaming red, and they would take live babies and set them into the hands of Molech, and they would fry to death, and they would beat drums and make noise to drown out the screams of these innocent babies that were being burned alive. That's King Ahaz. Now, before we get too mad at him, and we should be, because it's disgusting, and one of the reasons they had so many babies to sacrifice, as we will see, that their other gods, like Baal, part of their worship was sexual immorality. They would gather in the wood groves and have orgies, and all these babies would be born, and then they would take those babies and sacrifice them to the god Molech. Well, we don't have the god Molech. We have abortion clinics. And there's immorality running rampant, and we have babies that are being, that are, you know, are being conceived that aren't wanted, and one of the ways they kill babies is they inject the, wo the woman with uh, something that causes the baby to burn alive within her. Guys, we're not that far away from these people, amen? And we're going to see that God is not going to tolerate this, and it's the grace of God that he continues to tolerate our country. And I believe the only reason that he does is that there's still a remnant of believers like us. Amen? And, the, and our country, many people, we had a lady run, I mentioned this, we had a lady run for, uh, I forget what it was, student council or something, and she ran, and she, one of the things she said is, we need to get rid of all the Christians, if they'll all just go away, we won't have any more problems. Well, I would like to have a video of her house during the rapture. Can I get an amen to that? I pray that she'll get saved. She lives two streets over from me. I want to go over to her house. We're still here. Can I get an amen to that? But the point is, we see how perverse must you be. And we know from 2 Kings, I think it's chapter 16, that he actually takes one of his own sons and burns him alive. Ahaz does. So the grandson of Jotham, the godly king, his son takes his grandson and burns him alive in worship to Molech. We're three verses into this guy's reign, and he's already one of the most vile and wicked people you could ever 
interact with. By the way, the word for Hinnom in Hebrew is Gehenna. Gehenna is also another name where we refer to Hades or hell. Amen? And so this place was a place filled with fire. It was a place where they made sacrifices. They would burn sacrifices alive. And it's a picture, again, of what hell will be like. In the new place, again, in the New Testament, Gehenna means a place of burning fires. And they burn children with fire. Again, one of the reasons they did it is because they had so many unwanted children and it was just practical for them to just burn them alive and make sacrifices to their false god. Now, just in case you wonder what God thinks about Molech worship, I have the answer. It's Leviticus chapter 20, verses 2 through 5. It says, again, thou shalt say to the children of Israel, whoever he be of the children of Israel, of the strangers that sojourn in Israel, that give any of his seed unto Molech, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will set my face against that man. I will cut him off from among his people because he has given his child unto Molech to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do in any ways hide their eyes from that man who gives up his child unto Molech and kill him not, then I will set my face against that man and against his family and cut him off. And all that go a whoring after him to commit whoredom with Molech from among their people. How does God feel about it? What he says is, anybody who participate is going to be put to death. We're going to throw rocks at him until they die. And if you choose not to call out the person that does it and help stone them to death, then God says to them, I'm coming after you. Guys, this is why it's frustrating to me that we have Christians who will not stand up against abortion. Amen? They want to water down the message. They don't want, oh, I might offend somebody. Look, if you've had an abortion in the past, that baby's in heaven. Praise the Lord for that, and our God will forgive you. But let me just say this. May you never have another one in the future. Amen? Amen? And somebody's got to speak for the truth, and we see how God feels about it. And I'm just, I, I just getting so used to the dialed down Christianity in America where we're so worried about offending people. If you think abortion's okay, I hope you're offended. Amen? Somebody's got to stand up for the most innocent among us. Notice what it says here in verse four. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel, and he sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Here's what he did. He turned the whole land of Judah into an idol-worshiping orgy. He literally, on the high places, worshiping idols. Low places, worshiping idols. In the groves, worshiping idols. Everywhere and anywhere, idolatry going on all around, sexual immorality and perversion in their worship of these false gods, the burning of children alive. How in the world is this guy related to Jotham? But it goes to show you that we all have free will. Amen? And we can't, wouldn't it be great if we could force all of our kids to be on fire for the Lord? That'd be great. I'm sure my parents have said the same about me when I was young. Amen? So point number one there, God has no grandchildren, and we are all responsible and accountable for our actions. Because his dad was godly, he's not going get to a, get, a get out of hell free card. It's not going to happen. Point number two, sin has consequences. Look at verse five through eight. Therefore the Lord 
his God delivered him under the hand of the king of Syria, and they defeated him and carried away a great multitude of them captive and brought them to Damascus. Then he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, who defeated him with a great slaughter. So here's what happens. He's worshiping the false gods. What he's doing is mocking the true and living God. He's sacrificing babies. He's got sexual immorality running rampant. He's got idolatry all over the nation. And then God allows him to be defeated in war. See, God will even use an ungodly nation to bring about righteous judgment upon ungodly people, especially those who are called by his name. Here's the amazing part about this. God's still going to give this man several ways of escape throughout the end of the chapter. He's going to bring prophets to warn him that it's not too late. And even in this case, as his own people are being slaughtered, and they're being slaughtered because of their immorality, because they've turned their back on God, because they've been living lives filled with debauchery, and God allowed righteous judgment to come. It's their own fault. They have no one to blame but themselves. Verse 6, watch what happens. Says, for Pekah the son of Remaliah killed 120,000 in Judah in, in what? In how long amount of time? How long? 120,000 soldiers in Judah died in one day. How does God feel about what they're doing? It's the righteous judgment of God coming against an unrighteous nation. And again, by the grace of God, it's amazing that we haven't faced more of that here. In Isaiah 7, all of this has happened, and Isaiah is going to approach Ahaz. And it says, but the Lord, it says in, it's in Isaiah 7, it says, But the, I, the Lord God, say, this plan will not succeed, it will not happen. This is because Aram led the city of Damascus, and Damascus is led by a weak king, Within 65 years, Israel will no longer be a nation. Israel is led by the city of Samaria. Samaria is led by its weak king, the son of Remaliah. If your faith is not strong, then you will not have strength to last. Isaiah was challenging Ahaz to believe God's promise of deliverance. What he's telling him is, look, God says that Israel is not going to have victory over you, over Jerusalem, over Judah, and neither is Samaria, Damascus. And what's going to happen is that God is going to win. Now, here's a verse that's going to blow you away that is addressed right in the middle of all this address to Ahaz. Who knows what Isaiah 7.14 says? Somebody look it up. There you go. Who's that talking about? Emmanuel is Jesus. Amen? Here's what he says is, God is going to bring a sign. He let them know that, that even though they were, being, they were coming against Ahaz and he deserved it, that God was not going to allow the lineage of David to die off. And then even though Ahaz was wicked, even though his people were being defeated, God's plan would not be thwarted. And what was God's ultimate plan? That unto you a child will be given to the virgin, and what will his name be? His name will be Emmanuel, which is what? God with what? God with us. That's where 
that verse is right in the middle of them talking about Ahaz and his wickedness and how God in the midst of his wickedness is still going to preserve a remnant because through the line of David, the Messiah must come. Amen? So even in all the wickedness that's going on, God is still in control. God's will is still going to be done. God is still going to win. Now Ahaz is going to face these consequences, but God is still going to make that lineage remain so that the Lord will one day be born through it. Rebellion against God and worship of false gods brings about righteous, the righteous judgment of God. Then in verse 7, it says there, uh, because they have forsaken the Lord God of their fathers, the reason that they uh, killed 120,000, the reason that these valiant men, these mighty warriors all died is because they had forsaken the, the Lord God of, of their fathers. It was said many years ago that a man came to the United States wanting to find out why America was the greatest country in the world. This was about 100 years ago. And he wanted to find out why. You know that of, of the 100 greatest inventions, I think we have, we're predominant. We might have 70 of them. And our country is like 2% of the world's population. Why has God blessed our country so much? And when the man came, he said he went to the city square and he didn't find it there. You know, and he went to the schools and universities and he didn't find it there. And he went everywhere looking for why is God, why is America so blessed? Why is America so prosperous? And he said he found it in the churches because people were worshiping the Lord. But then he made this statement, America is great because America serves God. And when America ceases to serve God, America will cease to be great. And guys, that's the culture in the days we're living in right now. God is still on the throne, and praise God for that. Then it says in verse 7, Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, killed Messiah, the king's son. So he sacrificed one of his sons, and another one of his sons is put to death. And it says, Ezekiel, the officer over the house, and Elkanah, who was second to the king. So all these leaders that were alongside Ahaz, including his own son, are being put to death, and they're dying largely, if not completely, because of his own ungodly choices, because he is allowing idolatry in the land, because he is raising up sexual immorality. Then it says in verse 8, And the children of Israel carried away captive of their brethren 200,000 women, sons, and daughters, and they also took away much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. So Israel, remember, you have the 10 nations to the north, that's Israel. And they're in open rebellion against God at this point. And you have Judah, which is two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and Jerusalem is there. And they're literally taking 200,000 men, women, and children from Judah, and they're dragging them away to be captive in Israel. And this is all, again, because of their faithlessness before God. Now, the law of Moses forbid them doing that. They were not allowed to capture their own nation of people. And so now what's going to happen is as they're being drug away captive, we're going to see somebody come on the scene that's going to challenge it. That's a few verses away. So it says there in verse 9, so point number uh, 5, 6, thank you, stand for the Lord when no one else will. So, so they win this battle. They go down and they fight them. 
And they've had victory, and the victory is theirs because they've been in rebellion against God, and God allowed the victory. And one of the things they'll do is take the spoils of war. And part of the spoils of war is, is you know, gold and silver and, and the stuff that they have, but it's also people that they will take back and enslave and have them serve their nation. And so here we have this winning tribe. People of Israel have won the battle. And now they're bringing back 200,000 captives. And somebody who knew the word, knew that this was not okay, the God said you are never to place your own people in bondage. And Israel and Judah, though they are different nations at the time, they're all part of Israel, large Israel, and God's, again, chosen people. So watch what happens. But a prophet of the Lord, who was there, whose name was Oded, and he went out before the army that came to Samaria and said to them, Look, because the Lord God of your fathers was angry with Judah, he, was, he has delivered them into your hand. But you would kill them in rage that reaches up to heaven. Now, he comes to them and says, Yes, you won the battle because God allowed it. And God allowed you to have victory. But the rage and the taking captive of people has come up into heaven and God forbids it. Now, there's a great application for all of us. He's coming to people who are people of the nation, the chosen people. But when he comes to them and he addresses them, he lets them know that yes, God allowed you to have victory, but the way that you responded in your victory is something that God hates. And what was it? It's their rage. It's their anger. And I thought of this like when we're addressing another believer who may be outside of God's will, or we're speaking to somebody about the things of God, may we speak the truth, but may we do it in love. Amen? The Bible says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If someone calls me up to give me direction and they're screaming at me, I'm not really, I, I have no interest in listening to that person because the Holy Spirit doesn't direct people that way. Amen? And so even though God had given them the victory, the way they were celebrating the victory, the anger and the rage that they had in them was grieving the heart of God. And this one man was willing to step up to this group, bringing 200,000 captives back, who knows how many hundreds of thousands of soldiers, and he stops them and confronts them and says, God is the one who gave you the victory, so get over yourself. That's Pastor Day paraphrase. God gave you the victory, and now he is angered by your rage. He's angered by the way you are doing this. Oded means restorer, and he's a man who's seeking to restore the people of God back where they belong. He kept himself pure and usable by God in the midst of depravity, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He stands for God when nobody else will. And he's still this armed army returning from battle with captives in tow, and he gives God the credit for the victory and rebuked them for their rage and for taking captives contrary to God's will. All it would take is one guy with a sword to lop that dude's head off. They just won a great battle. They just defeated 120,000 valiant men in a day. He's laying his life on the line because he's standing up for the truth. He's not worried about what men think. He wants to be obedient to what he knows the Lord desires. 
It was God's righteous judgment that brought Israel's victory, and they too would face God's righteous judgment if they did not heed the words of the prophet. That word rage there means storming, indignation. It sounds like hatred and anger was pretty heavy during the fighting. And sometimes a war has to be fought, but it doesn't have to be fought like this. If God uses you to correct, exhort, rebuke your brother, you should never be done from a heart of uncontrolled anger. Then he says there in verse 10, and now you, you're, you're, you propose to force the children of Judah in Jerusalem to be your male and female slaves. But, have you, but are you not also guilty before the Lord your God? He said, look, God caused them to lose the battle because they were walking in direct disobedience to the word of God by worshiping idols. But you, by taking them captive, are you not too also breaking the word of God? And the only reason he knew they were breaking the word of God is he knew the word of God. Amen? And that was something that was not very prevalent at that time, obviously, because people were worshiping idols and people were turning away from the true and living God. And praise God that one guy steps up and goes, yeah, but the Bible says. Yeah, but God said. And guys, may we have, give us that boldness and give us the opportunity to stand up for the truth. The wrath of man, again, does not produce the righteousness of God. And while being used by God to bring judgment to Judah, their anger, their rage, and their violating of God's word, they're not to have captain of their brethren, would bring God's judgment upon them if they did not repent. Rage will call us to exceed God's heart in the matter when we're doing it driven by the flesh. It says this in Galatians 6.1. This is a verse you should all know. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you be tempted. When we see someone falling, the last thing we want to do is pile on. The last thing we want to do is come with an accusing finger and a self-righteous attitude. We should come alongside them in gentleness with a heart of love and concern. Bro, my heart breaks to see how far away you've gotten from the Lord. Guys, you can, you, can, you can take a million steps away. It's one step back. Let me pray with you. How can I minister to you? That should be the heart of the believer when we see someone has fallen. Notice it says in verse 11, so he tells them that they've gone, they're outside of God's will and God's judgment is coming. And now he's going to tell them what they need to do to avoid that. Verse 11, now hear me therefore and return the captives whom you've taken captive from the brethren for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. Now again, one dude, hundreds of thousands of soldiers, their spoil of war is 200,000 captives, and he stands up in front of them and says, you need to let them go, and the wrath of God is upon you. And all it would take is one guy to say, shut that guy up. I don't like his message. Let's just kill the messenger. But guys, if God is for us, who can be against us? And you plus God is a majority. Amen? He tells them to return them. Speak the truth. Do it in love. Galatians 6, 2, and 3 says, carry each other's burdens. And in the way, fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. So how are these people going to respond saying, the wrath of God is upon you? Look at verse 12. Miraculous. Watch this. Then some of the heads of the children, Ephraim, Azariah, the son of Jehonah, Berechiah, the son of Meshulamoth, Jehazekiah, the son of Shalom, 
Amasa, the son of Haldal, uh, stood up against those who came out from the war and said to them, you shall not bring the captives here, for you already have offended the Lord. You intend to add to our sins and our guilt, for our guilt is great. There is a fierce wrath against Israel. Israel is filled with idolaters, and praise God, there's a remnant in there that still fears God. Amen? And what do they do? They say, guys, we're in trouble if we don't give these captives back. They heard the word of the prophet and they responded. And guys, it's not the prophet's job to get them to respond. It's just his calling to be faithful to deliver the message. Amen? And you and I are called to do the same, to share the hope that lies within us with a lost and a dying world. We can't convince people to be saved, but we can faithfully deliver the message. Amen? And because Obed, Oded was willing to lay down his life if necessary, he spoke to them. They responded. Community leaders, not generals, stood up and said, you need to send those people home or God's coming for us. And we don't want that. And praise God, again, that in the midst of a perverse and wicked generation, there's a remnant that's standing for the truth. Facing the wrath of God, they repented. They did as the prophet had commanded. They left the captives. Notice what it says. Watch what happens here in verse 15. Now, this is repentance. Repentance isn't just saying, I'm sorry, and then going on with your life. Repentance is making right the wrong that you did. Taking an action. Watch what they do. I love this. Verse 15. Then the men who were designated by name rose up and took the captives, and from the spoil they clothed all who were naked and gave them sandals and gave them food and drink and anointed them, and they let all the feeble ones ride on donkeys. So they brought them to their brethren at Jericho, the city of palm trees, and they returned to Samaria. They looked at what they had done to these captives, and they had humiliated them. Some were walking nude. Some didn't have shoes. They've been you know, mistreated. And they didn't just say, well, you can go back. They literally brought them in at their own expense and they clothed them and they anointed them and they fed them and they took the feeble ones and gave them transportation and sent them back. That's called repentance. Amen. They went beyond just letting them go, but they said, you know what? What we did was wrong. We need to fix this. I pray that we would do the same, not just say, I'm sorry. Last two points. Point number seven, ungodly behavior will not escape God's righteous judgment. Look at verse 16. So while they're doing this, letting the captives free, what's Ahaz doing? You know, they're letting them, sending them back. And Ahaz has seen 200,000 of his people taken captive. He's seen 120,000 of his people die. He's still in his land. He's been run over the top of. So you think right about now he's going to repent and cry out to God for help. Lord, I have sinned against you. This whole mess is my fault. Lord, please forgive me. The people in Israel repented. What's Ahaz going to do? He says, at the same time, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria for help. So he needs help because he's losing the battles, but he doesn't cry out to God. He cries out to another pagan idol-worshiping nation. You know what this is a picture of? When we've gotten far away from the Lord and when we should repent and cry out to God, but instead we cry out for a worldly answer. We run to the world for an answer. We run to the ungodly world for help instead of crying out to the true and living God. 
verse 17. For again, the Edomites had come and attacked Judah and carried away captives. And the Philistines had also invaded the cities of the lowland and the south of Judah and taken Beth Shemesh and uh, Ajilon and Gedaroth and Soko, where its villages, and Timnah with its village, and Gemzo with its villages, and they dwelt there. See, because he didn't repent, God just kept bringing more judgment. He just kept bringing more enemies to come against them. Guys, God loves you enough to keep disciplining you until you repent. Amen? And sadly, what is happening is Ahaz is digging his feet into the ground. He doesn't care what God wants. He wants what he wants. Even as the enemy overtakes him, he still doesn't care. And we see this wicked and hard-hearted man. We already know how hard-hearted he is because he burnt his own son in worship to Molech. So the Edomites are descendants of Esau and the Philistines. Shouldn't those guys have been dead a long time ago? When they first went into the land, who killed, who was Goliath? He was a Philistine. And what they supposed to, all the way back in David's time, told to wipe them all out. And here they still are. And guys, if you don't put the flesh to death, it's going to keep hanging around. Amen? Why was Judah being overtaken by its enemies? Look at verse 19. For the Lord brought Judah low because Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. There it is. In case you wonder why God continues to bring the enemy to wipe them out and to defeat them, because he was, look what it says there, he was encouraging moral decline. I'll tell you what, that sounds like our country right now. Amen? Amen? Our, what is our country doing? Alberto knows, amen? What is our country doing? We have parades with naked men walking down the street with children on the side waving rainbow flags. What in the world? We have people mutilating their bodies and people saying that it's a good thing. We've got men going into girls' locker rooms. We've got perversion running amok and it's being celebrated. We have, we have Pride Month. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Amen? And we celebrate moral decline. It goes all the way back to Ahaz. God was righteously judging him because he was celebrating and encouraging moral decline amongst the people. And again, the only thing that's spoken against them today are, look, we used to be a moral society. Then we became immoral. We knew the morals were, and then we, but we didn't keep them. Then we became an amoral society, which means there are no morals. And the only people that catch any static are the people that have morals. And if you stand against sin, you're a bigot. You're an ophobe of some kind, right? Something a phobe, right? And here's the reality, that God hates it. God hates perversion. He hates it. Now, we want to see people saved. We don't want to be self-righteous. But we also should not water down what's going on in the world around us. Amen? And God here is so clear. I am bringing judgment because Ahaz, you are encouraging the moral decline. Because at the end of that verse there, you're continually unfaithful to the Lord. No matter what happens, this guy won't repent. No matter what comes his way, he continues to be more and more ungodly. Now, one of the commentators said, and I think this is probably true, he's mad at God because he thinks God has no power because he keeps losing. 
I thought, you know, that's probably true. He keeps losing battles. He's like, what use is my God? Because I keep losing. No, dude, you keep losing because our God is great. And he's helping your enemies because you are in total rebellion against him. And by the way, all the other gods you worship don't even exist. Amen? But sometimes people will shake their fist at God because they're in open rebellion against God and God won't rescue them out of it because they continue to rebel and then they blame God for the fact that they're in rebellion. Amen? And that's Ahaz. Rebelling against God, shaking his fist at God, wanting nothing to do with God, continuing to be unfaithful to the Lord. Look at it says in verse 20 and 21. Also, Tilglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came to him and distressed him and did not assist him. And Ahaz took part of the treasures from the house of the Lord, from the house of the king, from the leaders, and he gave it to the king of Assyria, but he did not help him. So back in verse 16, when he should have run to God, he ran to the king of Assyria. Can you help me? And then the king of Assyria comes down with his people, says, yeah, I ain't helping you, and give me your stuff. How's that working out? You went to the world for help, and the world made it worse. And that's exactly what happens here. And, the, and then notice what he does to pay him off. He goes into the temple, and he takes the things that were used for the worship of the true and living God and gives them to the Assyrians. And you know what that does? Where his dad opened up access to a place of worship, he is eliminating the place of worship. When they take out the bronze altar and the bronze laver and the table of showbread, when they're taking away the things that were necessary to make sacrifice and they carry them away to the foreign land, now worship of the true and living God can't even happen anymore. He is so caught up in worshiping false gods, he has no honor or respect for the true and living God. King Ahaz is an evil, 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 evil man. He turned to the world for help. They distressed him. They taxed him. They did not help him. They took treasures from the house of the Lord, used them to pay off their pagan idolaters when he should have turned to the Lord for help. Our fleshly help is deceitful. It says in Psalm 20, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. See, he was crying out to an army to help him. They instead impressed him more. He should have cried out to the Lord. Let's finish up. Last point. Times of trials and distress can draw us to the Lord or further from him. Let's read through this. Now the time of distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful. How can he keep being increasingly? I keep reading this. He keeps getting worse. Dude, the guy was burning children back in verse 3. How in the world could he be worse and keep getting worse and keep being more unfaithful? But then I turn on my TV and I see it right in front of me. Amen? It's just more and more perverse and more and more wicked all the time. Guys, when you're struggling, please don't make things worse. Amen? When you're struggling, come to the end of yourself. Cry out to God. Seek the Lord. If you cry out to him, he's faithful and just to forgive you. Chastening did not bring him repentance, but deeper into depravity and further from the Lord. He had no excuse. He had great examples like David, Uzziah, Jotham, the prophets, Micah, and Isaiah, and he became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. This is that King Ahaz. I underlined that in my Bible. Oh, by the way, this is that guy we've been talking about. This is that wicked as they come, dude. That's him. He's that King 
Ahaz. He's that ungodly man. A black mark is put against his name to show how greatly guilty this man was. Verse 23, for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him, saying, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me, but they were in ruin of him and all of Israel. He keeps sacrificing to every god he can possibly find, but the true and living God. Have we, have we worshiped that rock yet? Here, let's give some sacrifice to that rock. Well, let's try that stone over there. How about that tree? I mean, everything but the true and living God. He's turning to, to the gods that had defeated him, and he starts worshiping them, thinking he'll have victory. No, it was our God who defeated you because you were unfaithful to him. Amen? Can you tell him a little fired up about Ahaz? Lord, help. But it just reminds me of our nation right now. Let's finish. Verse 24. So Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of God, cut in pieces the articles of the house of God, shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. So what did he do? He literally chopped up the remaining things he hadn't given away, just shut the doors up, shut the windows up, literally made worship impossible, and then worshiped anything and everything else but the true and living God. And again, we live in a nation today, we worship fame, we worship money, we worship followers, we worship, you know, everything else under the sun but the true and living God. And we continue to do it. And Lord, help us. Amen? Final verses. It said there, in, in every single of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoked to anger the Lord God of his fathers. By the way, God angry with you, you don't want that. Amen? But you notice how much God has suffered and even given this man opportunities to repent, and yet he won't. How many of you guys, let's close with this, how many of you guys, you've met somebody and you're witnessing to them, and it just seems like no matter what you say, their hearts get harder and harder and harder and harder. Who's met people like that? How frustrating is that? When you're trying to say, man, the Lord loves you. I don't care about that. And, you, and no matter what you say, they just get more, you know. And uh, I'll tell you what, I'm going to start taking them to this chapter right here. You know, you remind, you remind me of somebody in the Bible. <laughs> I'm going to start calling you Ahaz. You want to learn about him? Let me tell you about King Ahaz. It's you, bro. I might end up in a coma or something. I might get hit in the head, but hey, I just, that's Ahaz. Then notice how it finishes off. Now the rest of the acts of all that are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So Ahaz rested with his fathers and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem, but they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. Then Hezekiah's son reigned in his place. Hezekiah is going to be the next king and it's the son of Ahaz. What kind of king do you think he's going to be? He's actually going to be a good king. So here's the excuse that wipes away all of us that may have not had a great dad or a great mom or a great environment because it doesn't get any worse than Ahaz is your dad. And yet God is gracious, amen? That was some heavy stuff tonight, amen? Two chapters, thank you, Jesus. So a tale of two kings. King Jotham did what was right in the sight of the Lord, Doing what is right in the sight of the Lord, he followed his dad's virtues, but not his fleshly choices. Prepare the way for the Lord that he might be used by you. 
How do you do that? To, to work in you and through you. Keep communication with the Lord at all times. Seek his guidance, wisdom, and direction in all things. Number three, live every day to please the Lord, not the world. Faithfully follow and pray to be used by him daily. Then we see King Ahaz contrasted Jotham. Did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. God has no grandchildren. We're all responsible for our actions. Sin has consequences. There's a heavy price that is paid for unbelief. Stand, someone stood for the Lord. Praise God for Oded. who stood for the Lord when no one else would. When correcting a brother or sister, boldly speak in truth, but do it in love. Number seven, ungodly behavior will not escape God's righteous judgment. We're accountable for every example we set for others. And times and trials of distress can draw us closer to or further away from the Lord. His heart kept getting harder, but I pray if you find yourself in a place of rebellion against God, that you would heed his call back, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and you would surrender your life to him yet again. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love you. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the lessons we've learned tonight. I know I've been exhorted as I've been studying this for days. And Lord, may you help us do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Lord, we know we can't do that without you. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. If there's areas of our life where we are walking in rebellion, Help us, Lord, to repent and to get right with you. Lord, we know that good works don't save us, but good works are fruit and proof that we've been saved. Help us, Lord, to live holy and set apart lives. And Lord, we pray for the Ahazes that surround us. Soften their hearts. Give us divine appointments and opportunities to share the hope that lies within us. Lord, we know we're just one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. We're no better than anyone else. But Lord, we've been forgiven. We've been redeemed. We're new creations in Christ. May we not keep it to ourselves. So we ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen.